This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be back with you once again on this Saturday morning. Uh, this will be the 34th consecutive program we have done dealing with the topic of the COVID-19 pandemic. The election is over. We don't know the result. Everybody's glued to it. But no matter what, it is over. And it's time we moved on. You know, the goal of this program always has been to provide a forum for clear, accurate health information and to highlight any misinformation that can be used to harm your health, the health of our listeners. And we will continue with that. Probably one of the biggest problems we're facing in this country today, other than the health pandemic, is a broken health care system. It's apparent to all of us that people in this country are not living as long as other countries, and we are spending more. And that is the seminal question here. Why is the United States spending more than any industrialized nation in the world by a long shot on health care per capita and we are not living as long as others for example you take japan japan spends between four and five thousand per capita for health care and they live till they're 84. in the united states we spend more than ten thousand dollars per capita on health care and we live to 78, six years difference. So all these other industrialized nations have people living healthier and longer than we do, and we spend so much more. That's the, that's the question that needs to get answered. So for upcoming shows, we're going to be bringing on guests who are thought leaders in our community, and nationally to ask them to pose the question to them why is this and what should we be working on meaning me and you and everyone as a community what should we be doing to fix this problem and the problem is multifactorial it deals with pharmacy it deals with health care for all it deals with a lot of different issues so we're going to talk about some of my perspectives in the second segment of the program. In the second half of our program, Lisa Trumbull will be on. Ms. Trumbull is the CEO of Soho Health, which is a, a network of independent healthcare practitioners located in Hartford. They're Hartford-based. And I, I spoke to a friend and said, who would you find to be a thought leader, kind of a futurist? Where do we need to be in the future? And... They immediately gave me Ms. Trumbull's name. So we're going to chat with her in the second half of the program. But we can't take our eye off the ball here. 
The pandemic statistics are staggering and growing. In the United States, we have about 239,000 dead Americans from this pandemic with over 1,000 deaths for the past several days. And the number keeps going up. Yesterday, we saw 128,000 new coronavirus infections. That's the third consecutive single-day record. Now, many people are saying, well, if you test more, you see more. That's not the case. Because you would expect that if you did 10% more cases, 10% more tests, you'd see 10% more positives. But instead, you're seeing 50% more positives. So the testing is doing its job. It's uncovering where this is. Identification, isolation, contact tracing. You need to identify where the virus is. And that's what we're trying to do. But in addition to the number of confirmed cases, we're seeing an increase in the number of deaths. I think yesterday was 1,300 deaths in this country alone from COVID-19. The number of hospitalizations are staggering. Now, not necessarily around here in the Northeast, but in the Midwest, places that we said were not hit so bad, they are in big trouble, running out of beds, running out of physicians and nurses and frontline workers to take care of them. So it's important for us to keep on the right track to solve this problem, no matter who occupies the White House. We've got to get a plan together. And more importantly, we need to put a plan together for post-COVID America, because this has been a landmark in our history with this many people, with 239,000 people dying. It's the biggest in 100 years. So this pandemic is not just a call for science to resolve the problem. It's a call for us to come together, red, blue, purple, whatever color your state, town, or you are, okay, to come together to say, what is healthcare? How is this not going to happen in the future? And in many ways, it's going to be with a much more efficient and better working healthcare system. But we always try to look back. And this day in medicine, Marie Curie was born. Marie Curie was born on 11 7, 1867. And for those of you not familiar with Marie Curie, or also called Madame Curie. She was a physicist and a chemist. She was the first woman to win the Nobel Prize. She won it for physics and then won it again for chemistry. She and her husband discovered polonium and radium. So radium, there's a word we hear all the time, radiation. She designed x-rays. She and her husband worked on that, and that x-rays. Also, radiation treatments for cancer. What's most interesting about their story is that they refused to put patents on their discovery. Because the thought being that this was just too important to restrict in any way, shape, or form. There's something we don't hear a lot of. People doing things because it's the right thing to do. And putting aside their own wealth and potential. Could you imagine if they had the patents for x-rays 
Again, very important that she stepped forward. And we're we're getting ready for some breakthroughs here, right? We're going to get a vaccine eventually here. We're going to get some treatments for the pandemic. But again, we have to figure out how to get that put in place and how to distribute that in a fair and equitable way to everybody worldwide. So we've got a lot of work ahead of us. We're going to take a short break. Let me give you the phone numbers here, 860-522-9842, 1-800-966-9842. You could also reach me anytime at info at alessimd.com. I appreciate all the emails. I appreciate your thoughts, especially with ideas on how to fix what is universally in this country felt to be a broken health care system. We're going to take a short break, and then I'll be back. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony And uh, today on the board, Matt is helping out. Mike Polko is not with us today. And uh, if you have calls, uh, this is the segment uh, to take to uh, call in, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. Um, so as, as we move through this, um, I wanted to talk about some examples of health care and how we move through health care. Um, a lot of people, when we talk about uh, health care in general and trying to provide health care for everyone um, who is involved uh, and all people, immediately think that this is socialized medicine. And there's a big difference between providing health care for everyone and socialized medicine. And let me explain. My experience... Uh, dates back to when I was in medical school at the University of Rome. I lived in Italy and had experience with the Italian healthcare system. Now, the Italian healthcare system um, was what we would call a socialized system. Everyone had healthcare. And the healthcare provided uh, for everyone, and since there was no real insurance, was similar to what we have at the VA, the, the Veterans Administration. You... Uh, went and, and got care, you didn't have a private physician. You didn't have a particular physician or office where you could call. Um, you called a call center and you were assigned a physician or if you needed care, you showed up and waited. But if you had a significant income or you were able to purchase insurance, you then went to what was called the private clinic, Clinica Privata which is what we were accustomed to and, and always have been accustomed to here in America. The private clinic being where you had a, a specific doctor to take care of and uh, really, uh, you know, who would be your private doctor, an office to call, um, who you were going to see every time you went in. So it struck me that when I came 
to America and even today. If you look in the waiting room of my office, no one knows who has what insurance. So someone can have Title 19 or Husky here, and someone could be paying cash, someone can have Medicare, someone could have private insurance. But everybody in the waiting room was seeing the same doctor, getting the same medications, and the same level of care. So it impressed me that although Italy and Europe were calling this socialized medicine, things were more socialized here in the United States from the standpoint that everyone got treated equally. So it's interesting that there are always different tiers to the type of care you get. Fast forward to, to the 1980s, I became involved on the board of directors of a group called Colonial Individual Practice Association. And the Colonial Individual Practice Association was a, a group of physicians who came together. Actually, they in 1978, they were the New London County um, Healthcare Forum. And it was a few doctors at Lawrence and Memorial Hospital and Bacchus Hospital, all in private practice, who got together occasionally for dinner and discussed something's going on. There's this talk of managed care, and what are we going to do to deal with it? In 1985, the group was approached by a gentleman by the name of Mickey Herbert. Mickey Herbert was the founder of Physicians Health Services, PHS. It was an HMO being established here in Connecticut. And he came to them with an offer and said, let's partner. If you, or we'll help you organize all your doctors in an individual practice association. And what we want you to do is just make sure we're getting value for the money we're spending. So physicians were paid based on a capitated rate. It was a fixed rate, and there was a withhold, um, and it worked out extremely well to the point where they asked us to merge with another IPA. So the group eventually evolved into all the physicians in practice at Bacchus Hospital, Lawrence and Memorial Hospital, Day Kimball Hospital, and Wyndham Hospital in one individual practice association. So doctors were able to remain in their own offices with their own staff doing things the way they knew how to do them and felt they should do them and be able to work together with a managed care organization. And they also oversaw the quality of the healthcare delivery. What we found out as that group was that our physicians were actually charging less than the allowed rate at the time. Our physicians were answering phone calls, making house calls. We also found that our physicians were being sued less than other parts of the state and other parts of the country. So it was interesting from the standpoint that we had a system that worked where 
Patients who subscribed to this HMO were happy with the level of their care. The HMO was very happy, and they were making money, and physicians were happy with their situation. And it brought home the fact that something I learned when I went to get a master's degree in management at Carnegie Mellon. You need to think global, but act local. What does that mean? That means that the delivery of health care is going to be different in Connecticut and New England than it is in the Midwest, out west, and on the west coast. It's going to be different. Now, what happened with Colonial IPA was eventually Physicians Health Services went public and got sold and the IPA disbanded. And we formed a new group called Colonial Cooperative Care, again, to try and keep doctors in private practice. One of the things I did, this was in the 90s, uh, Hillary Clinton was trying to redo the health care system. So at the urging of my wife, I wrote to Hillary Clinton to give her suggestions or at least tell her that we had a system that worked. Um, Obviously, that I was one of the millions of letters I'm sure she received within that regard. But now we're going a full circle from the standpoint that we have moved from all of the hubbub over delivery of health care to people thinking, wow, we have to do things on a local basis. And uh, essentially, that's what we're going to have to move to. How is healthcare going to be managed locally? How are we going to provide care for everyone? Okay, we have a special report, so we do have an interruption. Um, Matt, I'll let you go with that. This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And thank you for joining us for this 35th consecutive show in which we are dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. More importantly, this is the beginning of our 14th year here at WTIC. And over the course of the past 14 years, uh, I really want to thank all the listeners for their overwhelming response uh, of calling and emailing me just to say thanks for keeping them informed and providing a, a vital educational service for them. As we all know, information is empowerment, and that's how we can make decisions about our health. I probably don't say it enough, but WTIC has really shown a lot of confidence in me and encouraged me as we've all navigated this particular year of 2020. Uh, those people include Steve Salhaney, Janine Lee, 
And early on in the program, we had a lot of folks. Amy Ashton, who was previously in charge of sales and marketing uh, for Healthy Rounds. Now Jeff Chandler has taken that over. Uh, Mike Olko, who has uh, been on the board here for me. But in particular, a fellow by the name of Eugene Sheehan. Gene Sheehan uh, was the person who really heard me first in New London and brought the idea to WTIC and arranged for me to be interviewed and start this program um, 13 years ago. So as we begin our 14th year, I want to thank them. And I want to thank our loyal sponsors and partners on this program, Hartford Healthcare, St. Francis, uh, uh, Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford, as well as uh, MDA, uh, their med malpractice, uh, med, med advantage, MD advantage, who has done a phenomenal job uh, for us. So I wish to take this moment to thank them. Uh, the election is over. We're moving ahead and we're still faced with the COVID-19 pandemic. So let's get down to business. We have over 244,000 deaths in America, more than 67,000 hospitalizations. 193,000 new cases in one day on Thursday. In Connecticut, we now have 4,737 deaths, an increase of 11 deaths just in one day yesterday. 2,746 cases and 43,000 tests done. The reason I bring that up is our testing positivity rate is now at 6.4%. For the past week, it's been 4.9%. That's a tremendous jump. We are seeing new levels of hospitalization that we haven't seen since May. So our problem is still here, and we need to dedicate ourselves to getting rid of it. Now, some people are saying, well, of course, we got more we're doing more testing. We have more positivity. That's not the case. Let me give you an example. If you do 10% more cases, right, 10% more tests, you expect to get 10% more positive results, right, because you did more testing. If you do 10% more tests, but you get 30% more positive results, you know that you're doing a good job because you're out there finding the cases that are asymptomatic and spreading the disease. So for people saying, well, your numbers are high because you've done more tests, that's not the case. They're high because there are more people out there who have this infection and don't know it. In the way of vaccine and therapeutics, the big news this week has been the Pfizer vaccine, where they looked at 43,000 people, half got the vaccine, half did not. They got a placebo. Only 10% of the people who got the vaccine contracted COVID. So specifically, they waited till they had 94 positive cases. Of those 94 positive cases, 85 of them got placebo and only nine had gotten the vaccine. Thus, this vaccine, to the surprise and glee of all of us involved in science, is 90% effective. 
Now, the study's still going to go on. They want to get to a number of 164 and take a look at it. But this is extremely promising in terms of having an effective vaccine soon. Now, we need to also take into consideration the time frame for this vaccine. Not so much when it's available, but after it's available, how it's going to be distributed. People are saying, well, by the end of the year, we're going to have 20,000 doses available. This vaccine requires two injections. So of the 20, I said 20,000, I meant 20 million. So 20 million doses available. Of those 20 million doses available, they will treat only 10 million people because you need two doses. So it's such a small fraction of the American population. But we need to expand upon that. So here's how it works. Someone gets injected. And three weeks later, they get the second dose, the booster shot of the injection. So they get the second dose. Seven days later is when we believe they have sufficient antibodies to give them immunity from COVID-19. So it's a one-month process. It's not like you get this shot in the arm and you're good to go. It's a one-month process from the time it starts. So if someone gets vaccinated in, uh, in December, they won't be safe until January. So we need to keep that in mind. But in the way of therapeutics, we have bamlanivimab. Bamlanivimab, although it's a hard term to uh, pronounce, is the new single-dose antibody, monoclonal antibody that's injected to help fight this off. It's going to be given to people with mild to moderate symptoms as a single-dose intravenously infused, okay, in non-hospitalized patients. So people with mild to moderate symptoms who are not hospitalized and get it within the first 10 days of their positive result or the, or the onset of symptoms. So early injection, early treatment with only mild symptoms to really get keep someone out of the hospital. Previously, we thought using these antibodies was a way of making people who are hospitalized better, and it didn't work. So you need to give those antibodies sooner. Uh, the final bit of hope is the remdesivir study. So the remdesivir study was just finalized, um, this big study, on November 5th. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And this was a double-blind, placebo-controlled study. They looked at 1,062 patients. Half of them got remdesivir. The other half got placebo. And they gave this to people who were hospitalized and had respiratory symptoms. And what they found was the group that got the remdesivir shortened their recovery time. So their recovery time was shortened to 10 days as opposed to those who got placebo, and it took 15 days to recover. But don't forget, these are people who are in the hospital with respiratory symptoms. And again, remdesivir being used to try and keep people off of a respirator. So 
we are gradually increasing our level of therapeutics in addition to working with this vaccine that will be crucial for us going forward. One of the things we've moved on to in this program is looking at our healthcare system and how is it going to get better in the post-COVID era and now, how do we make our system better, more equitable? How do we keep people healthier? Right? The numbers are staggering. In the United States, we spend more than any industrialized nation in the world on health care. And yet, every year for the last three years, we're finding that Americans live shorter lives. And that should tell us all that we need to be doing something better, something different. I'm going to take a little change from this day in medicine and actually talk about a physician named Dr. Philip Lee, who died on October 27th at the age of 96. Dr. Philip Lee was uh, the son of a physician who worked for uh, the Truman administration. And his father first explored the possibility of a more universal health care system in America. And that idea was carried on by his son, Philip. Now, Philip was then labeled as a communist, uh, a socialist, uh, for trying to create some universal system of health care. But he finally prevailed when working with the Johnson administration in the 60s. He was one of the principal engineers of Medicare. As we all know, Medicare is a system that Myself and, and many listeners participate in in this country now. I don't think we consider ourselves communists or socialists. And the reason being that because we pay into it, it's insurance. We pay into a system while we are working so that when we can no longer work, either because of age or disability, there is some way for us to get health insurance. He continued his work. Actually, beyond the Johnson administration, he worked with the Clintons in the 90s to try and look at more revisions to our health care system. And more recently, in 2015, worked on the Affordable Care Act, which is something we still have today and may provide a basis to work with. So I want to remember Dr. Philip Lee because he dedicated his life, a, a, a working physician who dedicated his life to really looking at helping all, not just people who are elderly, but those who cannot afford or are unable to provide health insurance for themselves and to get adequate medical care. And that's what our show is about uh, today. We're going to be talking to uh, Ms. Lisa Trumbull. Ms. Trumbull is the CEO of Soho Health. Um, they are a network of independent healthcare practitioners located here in Hartford. And she is going to be the first of many thought leaders in our community who might be able to help guide us through these difficult times in helping to get ideas on how to revolutionize the healthcare system in this country. We're going to take a short break and then we're going to be back with my guest. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. 
And uh, if you have questions that come up during the week, you could reach me at info at alessimd.com. It gives me great pleasure to introduce my guest today, Ms. Lisa Trumbull. She is the CEO of Soho Health, uh, a network of independent healthcare practitioners in Hartford. And she's with us to share her knowledge on the healthcare system as it exists and where we should be going. Lisa, welcome to the show. Hi, Tony. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be with you today. So, Lisa, let's start with how you got to where you are, your background, and a little bit of information on Soho Health. Oh, sure, sure. So, um, I'm uh, born. I was born and raised in the Berkshires. Uh, uh, went for my degree, a bachelor's degree in business, uh, and proceeded to get a master's degree in healthcare finance. And <clears throat> originally started working for the local hospital. Uh, Berkshire Health Systems here in, in Berkshire County, and uh, moved next door to our physician practice, grew that practice from what was about 40 doctors to 140 doctors in three states, sold the practice to a public practice management company back in the heyday of uh, public practice management, and uh, the doctors decided they didn't want to be employed by a large uh, public practice management company, and they voted to uh, exit the deal. So I spent uh, about the better part of a year and a half splitting the practice up into 17 small practices and selling the assets. And that gave me a good opportunity to look for my next role. Uh, I took a job as the CFO of uh, North Shore Medical Center's uh, uh, physician group uh, at that point in time, uh, and then moved on uh, from the CFO role to a vice president of operations and finance at Cambridge Health Lines, and then subsequently moved into uh, a population health role as the senior vice president of population health and accountable care for Cambridge Health Alliance in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I spent about 10 years in that role, uh, and then this opportunity presented itself to become the CEO for Southern New England Healthcare Organization, or SOHO Health. And it seemed like the you know, right move for me at that point in time in my career, and it gave me the opportunity to work at integrating uh, uh, an integrated delivery system of providers, roughly 1,600 providers right now, going to be 1,900 uh, after the first of the year, and a hospital system, uh, the Trinity, uh, Trinity Health of New England hospital system, which was very much focused on value-based care. And it really interested me because it gave me the opportunity to bring to bear my finance skills, my operational skills, and all the population health skills that I developed uh, over the course of my career. And, uh, and bring it to Hartford, Connecticut, and Massachusetts, because we're in two states, Hart, uh, Connecticut and Massachusetts, and look to integrate what was effectively three accountable care organizations, uh, one in Waterbury uh, Valley Health Alliance, the uh, St. Francis Healthcare Partners in Hartford, and Mercy Care Alliance in Springfield, Massachusetts. Uh, so that's what you know, brought me to Hartford, Connecticut. Um, when you say practitioners, so we're not just talking physicians here, I assume. That's correct. That's correct. Physicians, nurse practitioners, uh, uh, physician assistants. Well, I take my hat off to you, first of all, because I think bringing together that many healthcare practitioners is kind of like herding cats um, because everybody is used to being fairly independent. Um, what What do you think the biggest challenge is for you in bringing people together um, uh, to work together under one umbrella? 
I think that's a great question, and you're very right. It's like hurting cats. It's actually worse than hurting cats at times because you have very strong, highly educated individuals that have opinions on how they want to run healthcare, how they want to deliver healthcare to the patients in our communities. And I think the biggest challenge that I face in my role is how to navigate out of a traditional fee-for-service environment which doesn't produce the health outcomes that we want to see into a value-based environment and bring uh, all of our clinicians along and our hospitals along uh, and, and navigate that change in a way that it doesn't financially crush them. Uh, moving away from the fee-for-service environment to a value-based environment is challenging because of the way we're set up currently for healthcare. Everything being paid on a fee-for-service basis, there's often a transition period that does um, have, can have negative consequences to uh, to the providers that are actually looking to do this work and, and move in a more progressive way towards a model of care that could deliver better health outcomes uh, at a reduced cost. Accountable care organizations are a relatively new concept uh, for many people who are non-physicians and, and part of the Affordable Care Act. It was, it's been part of this evolution. Can you specifically I- inform the public of what uh, an accountable care organization is? Yeah. An accountable care organization is a group of individuals, individual practitioners. So your, your local provider, your primary care, your specialist, your cardiologist, uh, your hospitals and uh, other providers in the community, which may include skilled nursing facilities, visiting nurses associations, that agree to come together and form what's called an accountable care organization. They, they still have their own little micro businesses or major businesses, but they agree to organize themselves in an accountable care structure that allows them to, actually, to contract uh, with your local insurer and, uh, or employer group to provide healthcare services for a, a, a budget, you know, based on a budget or a fixed rate, uh, fixed payment, uh, and uh, also agrees to produce a certain level of quality outcomes. Uh, you, be, the accountable care structure allows that, that, stru- that organizational process and the ability to negotiate for multiple providers to occur, which today can't occur outside of a structure like an, uh, an account- accountable care organization. So it, it gives the providers and the, commu- the community that has an accountable care organization the ability to see what kind of changes clinically and financially can occur with an accountable care and, uh, structure in place uh, in your community and what types of outcomes can be delivered to the community. So Trinity Health in New England and all of our providers in Soho Health have been doing this for a number of years. And what we've been able to produce is a, re- a lower cost of care and better health care outcomes, better quality outcomes, because we're organized in this fashion. So, and I think the key question is quality. I think I hate to yes, interrupt you, but I right. think the key question is quality care. Um, right. We're, we're going to talk a little bit more uh, with Lisa Trumbull about quality care, and, and we're going to take a short break. But what we really want to get to is how can the American system get better? How do we get better at providing adequate care at a lower cost? You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. My guest today is Lisa Trumbull, CEO of Soho Health, based here in Hartford. Uh, Lisa, I, I think you've given us a great insight into what's being done locally to really promote 
better quality, and more affordable care. But let's get down to it. Why are people living longer in other industrialized nations and those nations spending less on health care? Right. Well, I think when you step back and you look at the way that the American health care system was developed, uh, we actually evolved. Nobody selected this type of system for us to uh, deliver health care where we pay for every unit of service um, uh, that, that, that can be done to an individual. And uh, what that created was a system that overuses and misuses health care and uh, in a lot of ways that uh, increases uh, costs and, and doesn't produce the health outcomes that we're actually looking for that we actually want out of our healthcare system. In other, de- other developed nations, they spend more money on the social aspects of, of what's necessary, what, where the American system spends way more money on the medical side of, of, of uh, healthcare when things have gone wrong and it's time to actually pay for something to be fixed or corrected. Uh, and when you look at all the dollars that we spend, we put a lot of money into, into medicine, but we put next to nothing into social care or social supports. And we know that the health outcomes for an individual or a, a group or a population is based on not only their genetics and um, you know, medical uh, circumstances, it's based on their environment, their ability to, uh, to educate themselves, their ability to afford healthy foods and you know, be able to tra- uh, uh, drive to jobs. Uh, all of those factors uh, come into play in how an individual's health uh, proceeds through the course of their life. And our society doesn't value that in the same way as some of the other developed societies do. They, we don't put money into the social aspects of care, uh, as I mentioned. So where w- should we be better spending our health care dollars? Yeah, I, I think we should be looking at where are there opportunities in the way that we deliver care today that, that don't produce good outcomes, good you know, exceptional quality and, and good outcomes uh, for an individual and look at where service are, services are misused on the medical, medical side that are driving um, the poor outcomes and increase in costs and look to shift the dollars to things like community-based organizations that can provide services uh, to people at home, to educational supports for kids in our schools and uh, food programs for those that, uh, that are below the poverty level that can't, that can't afford uh, to have a healthy diet, nutrition services, and you know, a variety of other uh, services, including transportation and, and education. Uh, education plays a, a big role in, uh, in an individual's ability to manage their own health and to have the, the lifestyle that can afford to produce uh, better health outcomes. So when we look at kind of overutilization of healthcare, at least from a physician's standpoint. The thing that comes to my mind is imaging. Uh, I think, well, I mean, let's face it, we image way too much. There are people who will argue this point with me, but uh, I know that we image way too much out of fear that we're going to be sued, okay? No one ever got sued for doing an extra CT scan of the brain. But if right. you don't do that CT scan and there is something there, you can guarantee that your livelihood is put at risk. How much does medical malpractice 
influence based on what you've seen? How much does that influence this overutilization or overordering of tests? I think it's a factor. I think it's a significant factor. It, it comes into play in the ED, in the emergency room, when physicians are evaluating patients and, and trying to determine what's the right thing to do. Is it better to admit them uh, because it's a safer route, or is it better to send them home? And it comes into play in places like imaging. Uh, but we also have misuse of services that is, oh, is just waste. And it, it, let's continue with your example of imaging. How many uh, back study imaging uh, types of imaging studies do we need to do for lower back pain, right? There's so much right. medical evidence on what's the best thing to do for low back pain. And, and yet we continue to use, you know, MRIs and, and other modalities that really aren't necessary. And then I would say the other part that lends itself to overuse and misuse is fragmentation. Well, I, you know, I may have gotten my image over here, but, uh, it, you know, it, it at provider A, and now I'm seeing someone over at provider B, and now provider B is going to order the same image because there is an, ab an, an ability to understand that that other imaging uh, had already been done, number one. Uh, they may not have access to it, number two. The patient may not you know, communicate to them that it was done. And so I, I think it's all of those pieces that add to poor quality and poor outcomes, and uh, it, oh, it, it's more cost than what's necessary for treating a particular condition. Uh, you bring up a, an interesting topic because uh, the Affordable Care Act mandated that we go to an electronic health record. And I thought that might be the death of private practice. And mm -hmm. I railed against the Affordable Care Act. I'll admit it. I, I was against <laughs> Obamacare from that standpoint because I was being forced to, I was being forced to have an electronic system that didn't talk to any other system. OK, right. but since then, uh, many of us use the EPIC system. I know you use it at St. Francis. I used it when I'm at Hartford Hospital or at UConn. And suddenly I have access to the tests done at other institutions as long as they're using that same platform. That's Has right. that been beneficial? I think it's helped. Uh, I think if you ask a physician, they would say it's a double edged sword. Right. Um, so if we take the example of around malpractice and, and you're ordering more tests to cover yourself from a from a lawsuit, something similar occurs when you look at an electronic health record. Right. So, yes, it does improve communication. You do. We do have way more access to information and technology to the extent that it's able to be shared between various electronic health record platforms, right? So that there is an improvement there. But I think if you were to ask uh, a number of our providers and yourself, the, the magnitude of information that is now coming at them through an electronic health record is, is overwhelming. And uh, the provider's ability to actually keep up with that information is challenging uh, you know, every day. And so they worry, do I, if I miss this or I miss a, a communication or a flag in the record or I miss a result, test result in the record, am I going to have that same type of situation where I'm now responsible uh, or liable for a, a poor health outcome? And uh, as a result, it's leading to burnout in our provider community because they, they just can't keep up with the information. I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I honestly think we spend more time sitting behind a desk than we do um, taking care of patients these days, and, and that has led to burnout. What's the solution for that? Do you think it's more support staff? Because I find that you, 
it's an important part of what I do relies on a support staff that know me, know how I practice, and, and know what they need to do. I rely on people so much uh, from that standpoint. When I'm talking about that, I'm talking about administrative assistance, mm-hmm. medical assistance. Do you think it's true that we need to build that part of medicine in order for us to survive? Yeah, I, I think there, there are two uh, two issues or two maybe tra- um, uh, two tracks for how we can improve the environment. One is what you just mentioned. Uh, we need a different team around our, our physicians, our providers that are delivering care. The, the information and the tools and um, the results that are coming at our providers, as I described, is enormous, and they need more uh, in more licensed personnel and their practices that can better assess, review the information, and alert them to what's what's necessary for them to see, what they need to react to, rather than having a provider actually sit, sit through a whole bunch of information that may, in fact, be useless and, and not necessary for the treatment of the patient. So I would say, yes, that's true. And also to produce better health outcomes and quality, I think the physician practice needs more than just medical assistance, and we need integrated behavioral health. We need licensed social workers. We may need nutritionists or pharmacists. You need that 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 constellation of providers around a primary care provider in order to be able to produce better outcomes. And and I the last thing I would say with regard to the medical record, unlike other industries, the healthcare industry is so far behind in technology. Now we're catching up. Um, and but the the electronic medical records that are in place today are no, not as sophisticated as they could be. They're not as sophisticated as, as other systems that are used, like in the airline industry or you know, other industries where you can use artificial intelligence and um, other tools to help bring you bring forth the right information uh, to be able to uh, review and assess. Now we're making a lot of progress in healthcare, but it, it's not where it needs to be. But I, I think there needs to be more advancement in technology. The problem is te- the technology is incredibly expensive. And if you're an independent practitioner, it's, a, a, it's cost prohibitive. You can't afford to do it. Um, health systems can't afford to do it. The EPIC system, it's a, it's a great system, but it's really expensive to manage. Uh, but we need to we need to do better and we need to have better technology and that needs to advance at a quicker pace so that our providers can react to the right information instead of looking at uh, all sorts of bad information. We're going to take a short break uh, and we're going to be back with my guest, Lisa Trumbull. In the last segment of this, we want to get her impression of what the new system looks like uh, for the future of delivery of health care in this country. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back for our final segment of Healthy Rounds. My guest today is Lisa Trumbull, CEO of Soho Health. Lisa, what is your vision of the future? And, I mean, is it uh, is it Medicare for all? Is it Bernie Sanders and Medicare for all? Is it an expansion of the Affordable Care Act? If you had your crystal ball, if somebody came to you and said, "Here it is," what yeah. what would you what would you design? Yeah, this is this is the Lisa design. <laughs> um, right. I, I I believe healthcare is a right. I, I believe everybody in our society should have adequate healthcare coverage. Period. How we get there is is the challenge, and that's what everybody's debating. Is it Medicare for all? 
I don't believe it's Medicare for all. I believe we need other options. We need standards, uh, and those options all need to be standardized in, in a way that uh, everyone in our society is guaranteed to get the right health care and same level of health care. Uh, but I don't think it's Medicare for all. I do think the Accountable Care Act was a good start. It's a, it was a good start for putting in standards and expectations like uh, covering pre- prevention and wellness and, and covering children uh, over 18, particularly those that are uh, entering college. It put, in, it put in standards, pre-existing conditions. All of that are, is very important, but it really needs to evolve. Uh, I, I don't think our country is ready for a, a revolutionary change in health care but I think they want to see an evolutionary change in healthcare. And, and I don't think that they want to see employer-based healthcare go away. It will take us years to get to uh, something that looks like um, maybe not Medicare for all, but more universal care uh, for everyone. And the, the last thing I would say about what healthcare needs to look like going forward, we need to evolve the way we deliver healthcare in order to be able to afford healthcare in whatever model that we're talking about. And what the future may look like is that our hospitals may be smaller. They may be concentrating in specialized areas, dealing with the most acute, the sickest of the sick, and everything other than that would be, uh, would be cared for within the community. And I believe our, our communities and our practices need to be responsible for populations of people and the, and then surround themselves within their practice environment with the teams that we talked about earlier is the nutritionist, the pharmacist, the behavioral health person, uh, and with linkages to community-based organizations and public health. And, and then we have a, an adequate practice environment that can deal with more than what you would typically see in a primary care practice today can deal with a, a level of behavioral health or substance use, can deal with nutrition and pharma, you know, medi- medication reconciliation and pharmaceutical interventions without having to refer all over the place and create more fragmentation uh, for our, our patients and our, the members of our community. And then the last thing I would say, it's really important to have the connections to the community. You know, community-based organizations are extremely important to um, uh being able to improve the health and the lives of the individuals that we serve, and uh, we need to uh, we need to embrace those changes and and then figure out how do we then bring public health into uh, you know the pandemic is a, a great example of where public health could be uh, an important thing to be talking about on a regular basis and. Uh, an important way to exchange information about what is necessary to do in a situation like what we're dealing with today. Well, I think you've made uh, several important points there, and I think that healthcare is local. It's cultural, yeah. it's local, and for people to think that one federal edict across the country is going to solve the problem, uh, I think we both feel that they're mistaken. Um, My question for you is, although this will take years, how urgent is it? I think it's really urgent. I I feel after whenever this pandemic's resolved, when when the total button is pushed in in people and our society and our businesses look at how much this has cost us, uh, I think we're going to hear an outcry or a sense of we're going to have a sense of urgency around needing to fix this uh, and fix it in a material way. 
um, you know, the Centers uh, for Medicare and Medicaid have been trying for years to move providers in this direction. And uh, our employers have been trying to uh, have been dealing with excessive cost increases. But that that's no longer sustainable. It's no longer affordable. So I, I think we will see more material change and greater expectations. We're already starting to see it with the employer community that says, I can't afford, you know, I, I run a relatively small business, right? And my my premium, my health insurance premium for my employees was a 56% increase. Nobody can afford that, right? So we have to do something different and we need to work together. It takes every part, it takes every part of the process uh, to be involved, everyone in the process to be involved, that the, whether it's the insurer, the employer, the provider, and the patient all have some level of responsibility for fixing this. And, our, and what we're suggesting is change. And as you know, when you suggest change, that means there's going to be winners and losers. And we need to recognize that, that that has to be okay because we need to correct the system so that we can afford it and we can afford to continue to provide health care to our society, the members of our society, and we can afford to gen- we can generate the type of outcomes that we're seeing in other countries. Yeah, one of the things you've, you've emphasized, one of the things I learned when getting my master's degree, and that is all change is perceived as loss. Um, mm-hmm. But um, I think that we all agree that we need to make changes and move forward. And I want to thank you. I want to thank you not just for the generosity of your time today, but all you're doing in our community uh, to really help improve the health care of everyone um, and to keep doctors in practice, providers out there, uh, and working within the system. Lisa, thank you, and I hope we'll have you on again soon. Thank you, Tony. My pleasure. Um, that was Lisa Trumbull from Soho Health um, here in the Hartford area, and it was great to chat with her. Um, in closing, some comments. Uh, yesterday, um, I was driving through my town here, uh, Bloomfield, Connecticut, and at the Wittenberry Mall, an outdoor mall, many people know it, there was a long line of people out there in the pouring rain and cold with umbrellas. And what were they doing? They were lined up for COVID testing. Not in cars, they're out there. Many of them in this cold rain with symptoms suggesting they may have COVID-19. And that's the way they had to get tested. It was another line that I saw when you go to your local food pantry or you go to Rentschler Field these days and you see the lines of people waiting for food. And when you look at the people in those lines, those are not uh, people who are uh, homeless lying on the street. They look like many of the listeners of this program who have a job, who once had a job, and are trying to just get by. With this Thanksgiving coming up, and we we still have some time, I ask those of you who can to be as generous as you can with food pantries and other ways of helping those who have gone without, because there has never been a darker time in our history. With that, I want to thank you, and I thank Mike Oko, who's been on the board today, and Jeff Chandler, who's in charge of sales and marketing. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy and wear a mask. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. 
Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.